You're listening to the Menzraya Podcast, and this is the story of Archibald Thompson Hall, the butler. Archibald Thompson Hall, a.k.a. Roy Hall, a.k.a. Roy Fontaine, a.k.a. who knows what else, was born on the 17th of July, 1924, the first son of Marion and Archibald Thompson Hall Sr. He had two younger siblings, Violet, who was adopted when Roy was ten. That was about the same age he decided he no longer wanted to be called Wee Archie, and so opted for Roy instead. His younger brother Donald was born in 1938 or so, while their father was enlisted in the army. It's likely, however, that Donald was actually the result of an affair that Roy's mother had with Archibald's senior officer. Either way, by the time senior was discharged, Marion was pregnant, and soon Roy had a brother, younger than him by 17 years. Roy would take to referring to him as his half-brother, as he believed that they did not have the same father. Archibald Sr. was a steady, steadfast, and hard-working man. He had a good job in the post office, and, as such, the family was reasonably comfortable by the standards of the day. His mother, however, often had mood swings and could be quite ill-tempered and domineering. Roy was apparently of a similar disposition— and suffered from severe dissatisfaction with his lot in life. He, unlike his father, was not fond of the idea of an honest day's work. His first money-making scam was going to the posh parts of Glasgow, with a collection box for the Red Cross. He'd knock on the doors and ask for donations, which by the end of the day ended up right in his pocket. He began to be a familiar face to the police, and at 13 he made his first court appearance for malicious mischief. The telling off he got there fell on deaf ears, and he was back a mere seven months later on a charge of theft. His first stint in prison was 60 days in Barlinny, followed by committal to a mental hospital in Glasgow after he had been certified insane. He escaped that institution and was eventually let go due to the time he had managed to spend out of their care. Then he moved to London. He would later say that arriving in the city was like coming home for him. But at 23, he was sentenced to two years in Winchester jail. He spent his time there trying to rid himself of his Scottish accent and trying to sound posh. While there, he also met and befriended a large man from Newcastle, John Wooter, who became like a brother to him. Bizarrely, when Roy would later turn up at his parents' house with Wooter in tow, his mother, Marion, decided that John was the man for her. The two ran off with Donald, who was still small at the time, and set up house for themselves. John worked variously as a handyman and caretaker, and Marion worked in kitchens or as a housekeeper. The two would marry after Archibald Sr. passed away in 1963. Meanwhile, Roy had been back in prison, but on his release he managed to secure a position as a butler after he forged references for himself. He was now working for a wealthy family, who were well-connected. In fact, Roy found an invitation for the family to attend the Royal Garden Party at Holyrood House in Edinburgh while they were away on holidays. He had been steaming open their post. He thought it a shame that the invitation would be wasted, so he hired himself a morning suit, jumped into the family's Bentley, and drove himself there. He was finally in the company of the people who lived the kind of lifestyle that he himself wanted to become accustomed to. All around him were impeccably dressed and bejeweled people, and members of the royal family no less. After he had swanned about to his heart's content, eating tiny sandwiches and drinking champagne, he went back to the house that he was working in. A number of weeks later, 
After the family arrived back from holidays, they had a call from the police who told them that their butler had a criminal past. Roy told them that he had moved on from that and was trying to distance himself from the company he used to keep to get his life on the straight and narrow. And the family believed him. But the other staff at the house were not so sure. And after Roy overheard some of them gossiping about him, he resigned the position. He sought out his mother and soon-to-be stepfather, who were at the time living and working in Dumblane. The four of them only stayed there for a few weeks before John and Marion would move on to Paddington, and Roy would return to Edinburgh. When he had been at the garden party, he had remembered a little antique shop nearby in Edinburgh that he had visited often when he was young. It was run by an older woman, Esther Henry. She was a bit of a local character. She was larger than life and rich and travelled a lot, collecting her antiques. The shop was famous too, and often had visits from members of the royal family and other European aristocrats. Roy recalled that there was a large safe in the centre of the shop. He decided to start calling into the shop and soon befriended Esther, as he was there so regularly. It also became clear that the safe was filled with fine jewellery and left unlocked all day while Esther was there. One day when Esther was talking to another customer and distracted, Roy reached into the safe and grabbed a box and slipped it into his pocket. It was the first box he had touched and he had no idea what was inside until he got home and opened it. The box had a ring in it, with a giant emerald the size of a postage stamp set into it. At this point, Roy had next to no knowledge about antiques or jewellery, so he took the ring to a well-known jeweller in the city and explained to him that this ring was his mother's, but his soon-to-be fiancé wanted one just like it. The man behind the counter delivered what he thought was bad news. It would be hard to get a ring like this in Scotland. Emeralds like that were hard to find. He'd have to send to London if Roy wanted one like it, and it would set him back five grand. Roy contained himself in the shop but immediately went and bought himself a first-class ticket to London. He knew a guy who'd buy the ring from him no problem, and by the end of the day, Roy had £23,000 in his pocket and a determination to get to the rest of whatever was in Esther's safe. He'd need help, though, so he turned to John Wooter. They needed a third and had considered one guy first, but finally settled on another, the three men went about preparing to execute Roy's master plan. They hired a car and got American-style clothes for the two accomplices. They would pose as tourists. They rang the shop, putting on an accent, and told Esther that they were interested in bringing antique silver home with them to the States after their holiday. She told them that she had something in mind for them, and they made plans for the men to call to the shop in two days' time. Then the three men took the road trip from London to Edinburgh. That afternoon, the three split up, Wooten and the third man heading into the shop and Roy off to find a phone. The two men, with their newly acquired American accents, introduced themselves to Esther, who showed them a silver tray with a matching teapot, sugar bowl and milk jug. And then the phone rang, so Esther went off to answer it. And when the men heard her say that she didn't understand what the caller was saying, they knew that it was Roy on the other end. They opened the briefcase that they had brought with them and filled it with the contents of the safe. Esther returned shortly after, complaining about bloody foreigners, and she and the two men struck up a deal that they would buy the silver from her, but they'd meet in New York to finish the deal in two weeks. They thanked her and shook hands, and then they walked out of the shop with a briefcase full of jewels. The three men enjoyed their haul for a few weeks, Roy and Wooter living it up in Torquay in the south for a while. But soon, the first man that they had approached to help them turned them in, and within weeks, the three of them were arrested. The third man was released on bail, but Roy and Wooter both had extensive criminal backgrounds and so found themselves in Salton Prison. Wooter later pleaded guilty to stealing £15,000 worth of jewellery, and Roy pleaded guilty to receiving £800 worth, though both the men would later say that the haul had actually been closer to £40,000, and they had sold off £17,000 worth of that. Roy Hall was released in 1955, 
and went about trying to establish for himself some kind of facade of position as a man of means. He had a stash of valuables waiting for him and rented a nice flat and took on a young man, both to be his valet and as a companion. One of his first acts of robbery was to befriend an older lady who lived alone. She eventually mentioned that she was off to America on holidays, and Roy took his opportunity while she was away. He drove to her house in the middle of the day and took nearly everything of value. He even managed to find her stash of jewellery, which she'd left at the bottom of her linen basket for safekeeping. At this time, Roy writes that he spent his time living the high life and in the company of the affluent and famous. The company he kept was upper crust, lords and ladies, artists and directors. He said that he would scope out his rich associates' homes and target individual items that he wanted to make off with, and would sometimes have duplicates made in order to ensure that nothing was amiss. Another ploy he described later in his memoirs was to visit jewellers in the city personally, sometimes with a lady companion, to view their pieces, which he would then rob by sleight of hand. The impression that he seems to want to give of this time in his life is one in which he's accepted by these rich and often aristocratic and famous people, and considered as an equal, and all the while he was conning them, enjoying his life and taking their belongings when they least expected it. A job that Roy himself gleefully recalls the details of involved more of a confidence scheme. What follows is his description of events, for which I could find no corroborating evidence. Roy said he came up with a plan to steal hundreds of thousands of pounds worth of jewellery. It was very involved and took a lot to set up, and a decent initial investment on his part. He contacted Bernstein's theatrical costumers and ordered an Arabian garb, complete with a sheikh's headdress, as he called it. He also got himself a supply of iodine, which he covered himself in, to darken his skin. Then he spent some time calling good hotels, not the best so as to not arouse suspicion, and he booked rooms for a sheikh Mutlak Medina to stay, a suite. The day of the booking, he donned his costume and arrived in a chauffeur-driven rolls. He'd even gone to the trouble of buying 12 expensive travelling cases, which he had the bellboys take up to his rooms in return for extravagant tips. After a few days of establishing himself at the first hotel, he then had them call a slightly better hotel and book the quote-unquote shake a room. All the while, he was careful who he spoke to and how he spoke to them as he knew that he'd give himself away if he was careless. Again, after staying a number of days at this hotel, all the while spending money as if he had printed it himself, he had its management ring the Dorchester and book a suite for the shake. He had by this time established himself in his role, and his booking into the luxurious hotel was not at all suspicious. Not only did he choose this hotel given its reputation, it was also one that he said he had spent some time in and was familiar with. He said he knew that there were two exits in each suite, and this was of vital importance to his plan. Again, after a number of days, the sheikh called on the services of the hotel management. This time, however, the sheikh wanted to purchase a piece of jewellery for his fiancée and asked the hotel to send up items for him to choose from which they happily did. But the sheikh wasn't impressed with the quality and range of the jewellery and asked if nothing else was available. The hotel management said that that was all they had and then began scurrying around to source other pieces for him to look over. Within a few hours, Roy said, six representatives from six of the city's best jewellers were in his suite, each with an attaché case containing jewels for him to choose from. The sheikh hemmed and hawed over them, saying he was still disappointed, as he wanted something truly spectacular, but he said he'd think on it while he bathed and had the staff wait. Roy then went into the bathroom, which was in the middle of the suite, ran a bath and got the room nice and steamy, and stuck his arm out from the door, asking that the samples be passed into him to look at and consider while he was in the tub. All six handed in their trays. Roy changed out of his costume as a sheikh and into a suit. 
He left the bedroom from the connecting door and walked out the suite's second exit. He boasted that he walked away with £300,000 worth of jewellery and was never questioned in relation to the incident. I'll leave it up to you as to whether you think Roy is a good source for his own escapades or not. His next job after that was a pub that he'd been told about. He'd been told that there was a safe in it and that it had loads of cash and jewellery in. Not only that, but the publicans had a habit of getting themselves stotious drunk, and if he timed it right, he'd be able to get in and out of the place while they were comatose from drink. He began drinking in the pub and became a regular there, acquainted with the staff and the owner, and most importantly, the German shepherd guard dog named Alice. He kept little pieces of meat in his pockets, which he'd slip to her whenever she was around. They were soon fast friends. He managed to get a good look at the safe and saw that the only chance that he had of opening it would be to blow the locks, which was something that was not within his skill set. So he called a guy he had met in prison and a few days later introduced this man to his friends in the pub. He became a regular too. The two men decided that the weekend was the perfect time to strike, when the safe would be nice and full. And so, early on a Sunday morning, they crept around the back of the pub, and Roy called out quietly to Alice, who was very happy to hear his voice. She was also happy to be led by the caller to the garage, and to be shut up in there by Roy. He and his accomplice then entered the pub and covered the safe in anything soft that they could find. Blankets, bits of carpet, cardboard and then they blew the locks. They packed a bag with bundles of notes and the few bits of jewellery that were in there, put Alice back in the pub and closed the door behind them, and they were off. After that, Roy decided to lay low for a while and went to the continent, where he went to Paris first and then on to Nice. But soon he got bored of his gallivanting and the brief affairs he was having and decided to go back to London. When he got to his flat, the police were waiting for him inside. Not only were they going to arrest him for robbery, but when they had searched his flat, they found a thirty-eight revolver. So they had Hall on gun charges now too. Roy denied both of these charges, but was found guilty and sentenced to ten years for these crimes. So off to the Isle of Wight he went to stay in Pankhurst prison. It was a particularly harsh regime at Pankhurst, and Roy hated it. Because of this, he got a bit fed up there and hatched a plan to escape. He was slowly but surely chipping away at bricks in a tool shed that, if he could get through, would mean freedom. But he ended up hitting a pipe and causing a gas leak. His plan was foiled, but he was transferred to Nottingham Prison, so at least he was out of Pankhurst in the end. He was given yet another opportunity to escape when he was granted a two-day unescorted parole from the prison in order to attend his father's funeral. At that point, Roy had two years left to serve on his sentence. He was warned before he left, though, that if he should fail to return, no other prisoner would ever be allowed out in this manner, and that they would be told why and who was responsible for the policy. So off Roy went to the funeral, and then the day after, he presented himself back at the prison gates to serve out his sentence. As luck would have it, however, it was decided shortly after by the Home Office that if the governor of a prison gave his recommendation, those who had served at least two-thirds of long prison terms might be released early from custody. And so, two months after his day out, Roy Hall was a free man. He went about seeking yet again a suitable position for himself. His first job was pretty easy. He was looking after a disabled American gentleman. His duties were light, and the people he worked for he described as, quote, too nice to be robbed. He also made a friend there, Phyllis Nye, who worked as a cook. Eventually, he and Phyllis decided to look for a household that would have positions for them both. So off they went to live with the laws in Buckinghamshire. The house was huge and filled with extravagant items. Roy soon discovered that there were six boxes of silver soup spoons that were not listed in the household inventories. Soon, they were missing from the house altogether, having been brought to London to be sold by Roy. He said he got £3,000 for the lot of them. When Roy left his employ there, he had an extra grand and a half worth of jewellery in his pocket. 
He and Phyllis were then off to work for a former Lord Mayor of London. The house was not as luxurious as his previous posts, but the Alwyns did throw huge parties. So Roy had to quote-unquote get by by robbing jewellery from guests. That way, he said, if an item was missed, he could find it and then it would be returned. If he heard nothing about it after a few days, he would sell it off. Again, by the time Roy managed to find a way into the Alwyn's safe, he was ready to move on. He and Phyllis parted ways at that point. She wanted to settle down, and Roy insisted she had no idea about his past or present as a jewel thief. She returned to her village in the country, and Roy found new employment. He went to work in the household of a financier, Sir Charles Clore, who was a bit more eagle-eyed than his last few employers. Clore noticed that Roy's butlering skills weren't up to scratch, and decided to call his references. And that's how Roy's most recent thefts and frauds were found out, and he ended up with yet another 10-year sentence. This time Roy was sent to the new prison at Parkhurst. This one was only two years old and was equipped with the newest technologies, such as closed-circuit television, to keep an eye on its many inmates. But this didn't put Roy off. He still kept his eyes open for any opportunity that might arise which would allow him to escape. Eventually, he realised that one place was not observed by cameras, and that was the kitchen. There was a camera positioned to catch who went in and out, but nothing that could actually see what was happening inside. And so the beginning of a plan began to grow in his mind. While looking out his window one day, he noticed that there was in fact a way out of the kitchens. From his cell, he could see the rooftop and the place where the vent for the extractor fans at the ovens let out. The fans led from the oven to a room behind, a ventilation room, which was kept locked. This would be his way out. So all he had to do was get access to the kitchen. Roy teamed up with two other men, George O'Neill and Don Whitaker. They made arrangements for a car to be left for them nearby and had a duplicate key made for the ventilation room. The night before the escape was planned, Roy managed to get a hold of the list of prisoners who would have access to the kitchen the next morning to prepare for the day ahead. He added his name to this list, along with those of his two accomplices. Roy did not sleep at all that night, and at half five the next morning, he was woken with the other prisoners and taken to the kitchens. The three men opened the ventilator room door and climbed into the shaft, and soon they were out onto the roof of the prison. They made it to the prison walls and then jumped the fence. When they got to the spot where they were expecting to find their car, there was nothing there. Their man on the outside had gotten cold feet and so the three men were stranded in the fields nearby the prison. Soon they could hear alarms wailing, and they knew they had to make a move. They stole a car and made their way to Roy's sister Violet's house in Newcastle. What the three men would need now was a more permanent solution to stay outside, and so they took a job to break into a diamond dealer's house in Perth in Scotland. The family were on holiday, they had been told, and so the men drove to the house and broke in easily. But what they weren't told was that the house was alarmed and connected to the local police station. Within minutes, the police were pulling up outside the house. The men fled out the back and over the fence and left with nothing. Roy's two accomplices made it to the car and off away, but Roy did not. He wandered around the countryside until he came across an old country hotel, it was quite grand, and in one of the private chalets on the grounds he found cash, jewellery, credit cards, and clothing which fit him well. He stole all of those and walked through the hotel and got on a bus going to Perth. There he hired a car to take him to Edinburgh. Once there, he went on to Glasgow. He sold the jewellery from the hotel and bought nice clothing for himself. But the men still needed cash, and so a bookmaker friend of theirs told them about a local businessman who was dodging tax. The bookmaker said that there was about £60,000 in cash in the house, and so Roy and his two friends went out to rob it. As it turned out, there was nowhere near £60,000 in the house, but they still managed to get away with quite a bit, which would keep them going for a while. After the small heist, Whitaker decided that he wanted to go and spend some time on his own. 
Roy and O'Neill agreed and said that they would meet again in Glasgow in five days. But when Roy got to Glasgow, he found out that Whitaker had been arrested. It turned out that his accomplice had gone out drinking and he had quite a few too many. He told a girl that he was on the run from prison and within half an hour the police were at the door. Roy and O'Neill decided that the police would be no doubt looking for them in Scotland and so they decided to travel south. They went to London that evening and then on to Cornwall. Roy had friends there that he had met in prison, and they told him about a jewellery store in Falmouth on the other side of the peninsula, which would be a good target for robbery. The next day, Roy booked into a hotel nearby to the shop, and that night broke into it and stole rings, bracelets and pendants worth several thousand pounds. On the way back to his friends to sell his loot, Roy got into a brief car chase with the police who had recognised his stolen car. After all that, Roy went back to his hotel in Falmouth, and it was there that he heard two women working in the hotel, talking about police looking for a man who was on the run from prison. Someone had recognised him from a photograph in the newspaper and had rang the police. There were three of them waiting for him downstairs. So he did what every good robber would do. He hid under a bed and he stayed there for two hours trying to wait out the police. Just as he was about to venture out, the door to the room he was hiding in opened and two cleaners came in. But one of them lifted the volant sheet that was covering underneath the bed and let out a shriek. He's here! With that, Roy leapt out from under the bed, ran down the hallway and threw himself out a window. He then jumped the fence in the garden and made his way onto the railway tracks. After some time following the railway, he saw a house with a taxi sign outside of it. He knocked on the door and told the man inside that he had been in a car accident and needed to get to the local hospital to see his wife, who was gravely ill. He said that he would pay the taxi driver in advance, and so the two got into the car and off they went. On the way to Exeter Hospital, though, they ran into a roadblock. Roy tried to keep his cool as the driver rolled down his window, but the policeman manning the roadblock knew the taxi driver and accepted the story that he told them. They waved them on. When Roy got to the hospital, he went to the reception and waited until the taxi drove away. He then went and found himself a new hotel to stay in. There, Roy cleaned himself up and learned that there was a train going to London in two hours. He went to the train station and bought himself a train ticket. When in London, he met back up with O'Neill, and the two decided that they would have to go and help Whitaker get out of custody. They stole a car for them to head back north in. When they got back up to Scotland, they were involved in a road traffic accident, where a car ran into them, coming out of a side street. Roy injured his ankle, but the two men knew that they needed to get away as quickly as possible before the police arrived. They jumped in the first taxi to arrive at the scene and headed to the Western Infirmary Hospital. On the way, though, the taxi was stopped by a police patrol car. When the policeman noticed Roy's injuries, he said that he could go on to the hospital, but that he must be accompanied by a police officer. O'Neill was sent back to the scene of the accident. Roy played up his injury, acting as if it was far more serious than it actually was, and the policeman accompanied him to the casualty department of the hospital. He kept Roy in sight the entire time. Doctors told Roy that his ankle would need to be x-rayed, and so sent him in a wheelchair up to that department. Roy all the while was pretending to be unconscious with pain. The policeman shadowed his every movement. When Roy was wheeled into the waiting area, the policeman waited outside for a moment. Roy took his opportunity and yet again jumped through a window to make his escape. He slid down the roof and hobbled across the cobblestones. He jumped a fence and made his way out into an alley. Eventually, he found a little stone hut out behind a tenement building that was used to keep bins in. Roy pulled out one of the bins and hid behind it, covering himself with rubbish. He lay there until after dark. When he eventually deemed it safe enough, he emerged from his hiding spot and found the nearest telephone. He called his friend the bookkeeper. 
the bookkeeper managed to arrange somewhere for Roy to stay while he recuperated, and even arranged for a doctor to visit him and stitch up his ankle. While there, Roy found out that George O'Neill had been picked up and identified by the police. He was going back to prison. And Roy decided that he would head back to London. He had a friend drive him out to one of the more provincial train stations, where they thought there would be less of a police presence looking for Roy, and then he took the train back down to the city. When he got there, he rang his mother and stepfather, who were living at Stafford at the time. Roy never considered going to stay with them because he knew that his younger brother Donald was causing them a bit of trouble. Donald had started drinking and was in and out of Borstal. He had in fact married a young local girl and the couple had had a child, but their relationship was violent and she ended up leaving him. Donald had then moved back in with John and Marion. Roy knew that the police would be on the lookout for him back in London and that he would have to be a little bit more creative with lying low. So it was just his luck when he ran into young Margaret Fitzgerald in a pub in the city. She was sitting at a bar, nursing her drink, when Roy invited her to his table. She had left Dundalk in Ireland when she discovered that she was pregnant. She had not wanted to disappoint her family, and so had fled to London. Roy was fond of her, but later clarified that he loved her rather than being in love with her. According to Roy, Margaret didn't know what he did for a living. He'd told her that he was in quote-unquote business, and she'd accepted that. But he says that he was still in his chosen profession of robbery. He said that in autumn of 1964, he had gotten some information from two people, not criminals, who were willing to take cash in return for taking part in a heist. One of them provided keys to Jared's jewellers in Regent Street, and the other one worked at the company that monitored the burglar alarm system. He was able to make sure that the alarms were off at a given time on a given day. Roy says he walked away with hundreds of thousands of pounds worth of jewellery, and the knowledge that he would have to move on from London. He was quite sure that the authorities would suspect him in the job, and he'd have to keep his head down. Roy suggested to Margaret that the two act as a married couple, so he searched the papers and found a position for the two of them. It was with an older lady, and the duties would be light. The woman was really after companionship and company more than anything else. She had been completely taken in by Roy's fake references. So Margaret and Roy moved to Paddock Wood in Kent. Roy would therefore be able to look after her and the baby when she came. For Roy, this would be ideal cover, because no doubt the police would not be looking for a young married couple with a baby on the way. It was around this time that Roy says he told Margaret that he was on the run from the police, and that he was a thief, and she said she didn't mind what he did. Margaret had her baby on the 18th of December 1965. The little girl was named Caroline. Roy was just as proud as he would have been had the baby been his. He immediately rang his mother and John Wooter to tell them the good news. Margaret remembers that at this time they were never short of money. There were a number of burglaries in the area, and Roy wrote himself that he had managed to scam the life savings out of an older woman living alone. In March 1966, Roy arranged for a dinner at a local hotel for his entire family. His sister Violet and his mother and stepfather met Margaret for the first time, as well as little baby Caroline. As usual, Donald was not invited. This dinner was the beginning of a period in time marked by Roy's inability to stay in one place for very long. Margaret himself and the baby travelled from Glasgow to the seaside, back to London, and then stayed with John and Marion for a while, until Roy eventually decided to rent a small chalet at Weston Supermare. Within ten days of settling there, Roy was arrested again. The police had been tipped off as to his whereabouts, and Roy would always suspect that it had been done by his brother, Donald. In the meantime, Margaret was beside herself. She was unable to take care of herself or the baby, so Marion took Caroline in. Margaret went up to Glasgow and visited some of Roy's friends, and even took a short holiday in Ireland before returning to London. After a while, she moved back in with John and Marion, but decided that she was going to move to Canada, and asked if Marion would look after baby Caroline. As she was boarding the ship to Canada at Liverpool, she handed John Wooter a piece of paper 
which signed over guardianship rights of baby Caroline to himself and Marion. Margaret would not return from Canada. Meanwhile, Roy was taken back to Edinburgh, where he faced charges of theft, reset and fraud. He was given another five years to serve concurrently with the remainder of the ten-year sentence he had skipped out on. Back he went to Parkhurst Prison. His time there was less than boring, though. Roy found out that also being housed in the prison was a man by the name of Peter Kroger, who had been convicted of espionage. Roy had been fascinated by the scandal, and when he found out that a key to the greenhouse also opened the prisoner records room, he realised he could make some money from the case. He would steal the files and sell them to the papers. He managed to get the papers out of the records room, but only as far as his cell, where they were found. Rather than admit he had a key to the room, Roy said that he had had a prison officer smuggle the papers out to him. This resulted in a trial against the officer for offences under the Official Secrets Act. Roy got to be a star witness at the trial that followed, but the jury weren't convinced by him, and the officer was acquitted in the end. Roy was eventually moved to Hull Prison, where he managed to settle in a bit better. He in fact made two friends there, one named David Bernard. Roy fell madly in love with David, and while they spent time together in prison, they made plans to make a life with each other once they were both out. Roy would later say that this was the first time he was truly in love, despite his many partners in the past. The other man was named David Wright, and it was with him that Roy had met his match. The two men were as devious and vicious as each other. Roy kept his head down in hole, with his eye supposedly on the goal of getting David Bernard out as quickly as possible. The two of them would live together and set up a business. He managed to serve out the last two years of his sentence, working during the days on a sort of parole in the nearby Whittingham Mental Hospital, while he stayed at a halfway house. Roy worked in the kitchens and really took to his position there. Within a few months, he was put in charge of the stores. He even figured out how to make a little extra income for himself by selling extra supplies that he ordered. He managed to get his brother Donald a job there too, despite his troubled past. While there, he also made a connection with a woman who worked as a kitchen mate named Mary Coggle. She quickly became devoted to Roy and would do just about anything for him. Roy was still in love with David Bernard, but he was never the sort of man to turn down sex. It helped that Mary, though quiet and small, was also a little crooked too, just like him, and she helped him out in his scams on the side. In order to sell on the goods, Roy went about making contacts in the village next to the hospital. Hazel Patterson owned the local shop. She was widowed and lived there with her two youngest children. She was happy to buy goods from Roy when they were available. Her money came from her deceased husband, who had owned a publisher's, and she was a prominent woman in the town. She was also quite noticeable as a loud, brash blonde. She was in fact quite taken with Roy, and soon the two had made plans that they would live together when Roy had finished his sentence. He told her a version of why he had ended up in prison, and said that he wanted to go straight, and Hazel accepted this. When Roy finished his terms up, Hazel threw a big party, like an engagement bash or a wedding do. Roy's family and friends were all invited, and afterwards, Roy moved in with the Pattersons. Hazel said that they were to be married, but they never did get around to that. Soon, Roy started to go to London for quote-unquote business. And while there, he met another woman, Ruth, and started up a relationship with her which very quickly did find itself in a registry office. Roy would later say that Ruth was the only woman that he ever really loved, despite the fact that he was also sleeping with Mary Coggle, leading on Hazel Patterson and continuing to profess his love for David, who was still in prison. Ruth was a striking, sophisticated woman. Although Roy never told her what he really did, she knew that he had been in prison and that his business practices weren't exactly legitimate. After their marriage, Roy moved into her flat, though he was spending his time divided between multiple locations at that point. 
Meanwhile, Roy spent months living with Hazel, trying to figure out a way to benefit from her assets, which were tied up in the shop, and gallivanting around with Ruth whenever he felt like it. Mary Coggle and Donald became features of the Patterson household, even though Hazel didn't really like either of them, and she sometimes felt that Mary Coggle was keeping an eye on her for Roy. Hazel was completely unaware of the existence of Ruth, until Donald went and got himself arrested. The police called by the shop to search it, given he was there so often. One of the police officers who showed up asked Hazel if she really was married, and she finally admitted that she wasn't. The officer said something like, well, that's a pity because we could have gotten him for bigamy too, given his wife in London. When Hazel told them that Roy hadn't really ever married Margaret Fitzgerald, who she thought they were talking about, they said, no, no, Roy was definitely married to this woman. She was in London, and her name was Ruth. But Roy easily convinced Hazel that the marriage had meant nothing, that it was a marriage of convenience and no more. Hazel said she believed this incredibly vague excuse and thought that running the business had kept her too occupied and that she didn't spend enough time with Roy. So she said she was going to sell the shop, which was exactly what Roy wanted to hear, and so he encouraged it. It would be much easier for him to get money from her if all her assets were liquid. So they rented a cottage together and began preparing for their first Christmas. Roy told Hazel that she should lodge some money in his personal account for quote-unquote tax purposes, and she did. £500 she lost that way. But they wouldn't spend Christmas in their new cottage. The police were back on Roy's tail for robberies. He decided to stay in London and have John Harvey, his brother-in-law, travel to Hazel and help her pack up the house and join him. But before they could leave, the police were at their door looking for Roy, who, luckily for them, had stayed away. When Hazel got to the city, Roy announced that he had gotten a position for himself and Hazel at a house in Warwickshire, complete with a cottage on the grounds for their own use. But this would only last for three months. Quickly, Roy was picked up yet again for robbery, this time including robbing a briefcase which happened to contain secret state papers. He was in big trouble and knew he was way out of his depth and so cooperated with authorities. Still, he landed back in prison for three years. While inside, he broke things off with Ruth. Through that particular stay, Hazel visited him often, but when Roy finally got out, he decided he would have to leave Hazel. Rather than tell her this, though, he took her on a holiday and said he had gotten a job in oil fields in Scotland. Roy told her that he was going to go there and work, and when he had saved up enough money, he'd come back. But he had no such plans. In fact, he'd gotten another butlering job, this time in Scotland for a Lady Hudson of Kirtleton, near Dumfrieshire. It was a more secluded place than he was used to, but as he took stock of the household around him, to come up with the best plan for his endgame in the place, he actually saved his wages very unlike him. He had John Wooter and Caroline come up to visit him, passing them off as his brothers and niece. They had enjoyable holidays in the countryside there. But they weren't the only ones that visited Roy up there. He also had his old friend from prison up to stay with him, David Wright. A good twenty years younger than Roy, David was a fit young man, and Lady Hudson warmed to him, given he was a decent shot and good with her dogs. She began to employ him as an odd job man. Roy was still fond of David Wright and so went about ensuring that David had everything he possibly wanted. Soon he had blown through his savings and was spending most of his wages on him too. Looking back though, Roy had no kind words for Wright. He said that he was a grass and untrustworthy and disloyal. But Roy liked having him in his bed. Wright had threatened Roy, too, and had said that if he didn't give him what he wanted, he'd tell Lady Hudson that she'd employed a thief. Roy began to understand that Wright was far more violent than he had thought, and this came to a head when David claimed to have killed a man in Birmingham. Despite all this, Roy still kept David around, but Roy wanted to make sure that David stayed out of Lady Hudson's things. 
He didn't know what his plan was, but if stuff went missing, then the jig would be up and he'd have to start all over, yet again. And then, while she was on holiday in London, Roy discovered that one of his employer's rings was missing. He knew immediately that David was responsible, and so went to his room to search it. He didn't find the ring, but he did find a scrap of paper with a name and telephone number on it. This led to a young girl, who had in fact been given the ring by Wright. David had told her that he was Lady Hudson's grandson, and she was horrified to learn the truth from Roy. She returned the ring to him, and he replaced it in Lady Hudson's quarters. Then he sat in the house and waited for David to return, letting his anger build all the while. He was furious. When David got back in, they had a blazing row, and David stormed out. Roy tried to wait up for him to come back, but eventually gave up when there was no sign, and went to bed. He next saw David at about half two in the morning. Roy awoke to find Wright storming into his room, shouting incoherently and waving around a twenty-two rifle. He shot at Roy, and the bullet went through the headboard and lodged into the wall, just missing him. Roy tried to get away, but David slammed the butt of the rifle into his face, causing a large gash on Roy's cheek. At that point, David Wright burst into tears. The two men cleaned up Roy's wounds and filled the bullet hole with polyfiller. Then David fell into a drunken stupor in his own room. Roy was totally freaked out. He was scared out of his mind of being alone in the house with this guy now, and he rang his sister Violet in a panic. She would later say that he was incoherent on the phone, going on about being afraid, there being so many guns in the house, and so on. She told him to get into the car and to drive down to her that night, but instead he hung up the phone. Another plan had come to Roy. The next morning he suggested to David that they go rabbit hunting, and David, thinking that this meant that the argument the night before had been forgiven and forgotten, readily agreed. They both took guns and off they went out into the countryside. Roy kept count of the shots David took, and when all six shots were spent, he suggested that the two of them sit down beside a stream for a smoke. As David went to light his cigarette, Roy shot him from behind in the head. But David didn't die. Roy shot him twice more, and still David was breathing, and so shot him again. Roy rested there for a while next to the body. He was emotionally exhausted from the whole thing, he'd said. When he got up, he went back to the house, put the guns away, and went about preparing for the arrival of Lady Hudson that evening. After dinner, he went back down to the stream and began his first attempt to hide David Wright's body. He tried to dig a small hole with his bare hands before rolling David into it, and then covered it with stones. But Roy could see that this was in no way sufficient to hide the body. He'd have to try again. The next morning, he arrived back at half five, this time with a shovel. He dug a deeper hole and covered it with muck and stones. After lunch, he brought the household dog down to the scene to see if he had done a good enough job, but she stopped and sniffed at the gravesite. His third and final attempt got no attention whatsoever from Tessa the Labrador. This is how, by 1978, Roy had moved from thief to murderer. He had spent nearly half of his life in prison and had managed to establish next to no meaningful relationships or consistency in his life. He was constantly on the move, and despite the fact that he was well known to the police, he would not give up his determination to rob the rich and assume a lifestyle that he had always longed for. Roy would later blame both David Wright and the prison service for his actions that day. David, because he was disloyal and violent, someone beneath Roy's station as he saw it, and someone whose life was not worth the possibility of ruining Roy's hard work. The prison service he blamed for his inability to reform himself. He thought it was their fault that he had returned to a life of crime, rather than step into the life that he had always wanted, as a person of wealth and worth in the eyes of society. Either way, and whoever is to blame, although I suspect that it's Roy himself who shoulders that burden, this event would change the trajectory of Archibald Hall, a.k.a. Roy Fontaine's life. Though the murder of David Wright was his first, it was most certainly not his last.
next time on the Mens Rea podcast. Thanks for listening to Mens Rea, a true crime podcast. If you like what you heard, you can head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. You can get in touch on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Mens Rea Pod, or why not shoot me an email to mensreapod at gmail.com. I love your feedback, and I love hearing from you, so do get in touch. A very special thank you to our supporters on Patreon. Big thanks this time round to new patrons Sonia Mary, Erica Kelly from the Southern Fried True Crime Podcast, and Bonnie Lee from Writing About Crime, both podcasts that I highly recommend you check out. Thanks so much, guys. Your support means the world to me. And if you want to brighten my day, or get some nifty podcast swag, or have access to early release, ad-free, or bonus men's right content, head on over to Patreon today. I am exceedingly grateful for every cent. Thanks also to some of our recent five-star reviewers on Apple Podcasts. Thank you to John Daly, who left a review on the Irish iTunes store in April of this year. Thank you for your kind words. I hope you've been able to see how the show has progressed over the past couple of months, and that you're still seriously hooked. Thank you to Stevo839. Thanks for your five stars. Thank you to The Smith Fella, Keith S., also to Rory John and Mary Cotton. Thank you for your review about enjoying the legal aspect of the podcast. I'm glad that my indulgence in being a bit of a legal nerd is interesting to you. (laughs) So thank you all very much. I do keep an eye on the iTunes stores in the US and Canada and Australia, Ireland as well. And I read pretty much all of them. So please do be nice. And I appreciate everyone's five stars. Thank you very much. This podcast is researched, written, and produced by me, your host, Sinead. All sources used for today's episode can be found on our website, www.mensreapod.com, and in the show notes. Do check them out. Our theme song is Quinn's Song, First Dance by Kevin MacLeod. Till next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do. The trajectory, the trajectory, the trajectory, the trajectory. Salute. Roy got into a brief car chase. No. No, 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 no.